Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClain Hand Show. This is episode 96. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, always a little housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can do so by liking me on Facebook. You can search for me there at facebook.com slash Brian McClanahan. That's Brian with an O. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. And again, just look for Brian McClanahan. Also, if you do like this podcast and you want to keep the lights on or help me keep the lights on, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can donate to The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll take whatever penny you want to throw my way, and I'd appreciate any support you can give me. Also, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com, you can subscribe to my email list. Just give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and I'll give you a free audiobook read by yours truly of Forgotten Founders. So go ahead and do that as well. And, of course, I'm still running my promotions for How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. It's got just a little over a month left in that. Uh, and, of course, if you do get involved in that promotion, you get, if you order pre-order one book, I will send you a ebook, uh, The Jeffersonian Solution. And if you pre-order two or more books, you'll not only get The Jeffersonian Solution, but also a six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. And everyone who pre-orders a book and sends the uh, screenshot of that pre-order to uh, blamehamilton at gmail.com. You will be registered for the contest, which is uh, the, the grand prize winner will get a master-level membership to uh, Liberty Classroom. And, of course, there's also a second and third place prize as well. Um, so go on out there and check all that information out. Just go to blamehamilton.com, and you can uh, get in on the, on the contest and the giveaways you don't want to miss out because September 18th, they stop. So if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you're a new listener or you just have been sitting around saying, yeah, I'll get to that, why wait? Uh, of course, the uh, and if you order any of the books, you know, if you get a Kindle version of it, an ebook version, that counts as well. I know some people have ordered a, an ebook version and a hard version, hardback version, version to get the, uh, the six-lecture course. That works. You can order it from two different places. That works too. So whatever you want to do to get that uh, material, uh, you can get those up until September 18th, and then it all ends that day. So uh, please go on out there and check that out. Of course, as I've mentioned before, the forward to the book is written by Ron Paul. The agenda of that book is to change the narrative on Alexander Hamilton to where he's not this um, grand uh, hipster of the 21st century that everyone seems to love and adore. I take him apart. Of course, uh, 
Michael Malice won't like that, but that's okay. Uh, and, and I just received a catalog today from the University Press of Kansas, and there's a new book on Hamilton's uh, legal mind, right? So um, Hamilton as the lawyer and all these things, he's, all the arguments he made for implied powers or commercial treaties or foreign policy, executive power, through the legal perspective, from a, from a uh, lawyer's perspective. And my book actually talks about that as well. So um, it's, um, I think that you won't be disappointed in pre-ordering it. And when you get it, um, hopefully you're going to enjoy it and uh, you'll go on out there and leave a good review. Okay, well, today I actually want to talk about something that has to do with uh, current events in a way. And, um, but it's, it's going to have a historical undertone to it. And that's this whole concept of populism. What is that? So we've seen recently, you know, Donald Trump called a modern-day populist. He's a modern-day Andrew Jackson. And I've already done a podcast on Andrew Jackson, so I'm not going to focus on Jackson. But I want to talk about this whole idea, this whole concept of American populism. What is that? Because we hear this all the time. Well, this person's a populist. This person talks like a populist. This person acts like a populist. This person is a populist. And while I was in the uh, Walmart the other day and going through the checkout line there, I looked down to the left, maybe it was to the right, I don't know, and I see a Time Magazine special edition, Andrew Jackson, an American populist. And so it's written by John Meacham. Now, of course, if you don't know who John Meacham is, he is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of The American Lion, which is a biography of Andrew Jackson, among other things. He's also written uh, a book about Thomas Jefferson. He's got one about George H.W. Bush. He went to the University of the South. Um, he's, he's under 50. He's, he's, I think, 48 years old. So he's, he's not, a, not an old guy. He's a young guy. Uh, and he's had a lot of success in these very popular histories. And so I pick this thing up, and I start looking through it. And, of course, it's all the standard boilerplate stuff about Andrew Jackson, the stuff that uh, mainstream academics want. You know, of course, Meacham doesn't have a, a Ph.D. He just has a B.A. in, I believe, in journalism or history, one or the other. And uh, But he writes popular histories. He's worked at Newsweek and Time for years. And so he is a very good writer. But uh, if you look at the, the topics that he chooses, of course, you can look at this with, with Chernow's Hamilton as well. They write about the same people over and over again. And, of course, everyone fawns and goes crazy about, oh, this is so good. Uh, you know, this is the, the new uh, biography of, of Andrew Jackson or Alexander Hamilton that just uh, replaces all the old. Uh, and in this particular case, you know, so we had this $13 magazine that's a condensed version, I would say, of... of um, his book on Hamilton that gets through a, a number of issues. And of course, it's got, again, the standard boilerplate progressive uh, information that, uh, you know, the PC version of, of, of Jackson in a lot of ways. They have to talk about the Trail of Tears. They have to talk about the uh, slavery in, in the Jackson uh, household and his legacy and all these. Well, the thing that I was most interested in this magazine is actually that, his legacy, how, how Meacham framed his legacy. And this section on populism that actually Meacham didn't write. Uh, the little section on populism is kind of a, a, uh, a side note here. And it was actually written by, um, not Meacham, but uh, Daniel Levy, who is uh, also a colleague of Meacham's at uh, Time as well. He's a reporter there, and he's been doing that for a long time. But he wrote this, this little section, a timeline of American populism. And uh, the, the title says, All American Populism. And the uh, subtitle or the, the section that describes it says, Andrew Jackson rose as a man of the people, embodying the notion of populism. 
That concept, essentially born of the people, not the elite, has had many manifestations, some fair and some foul, in U.S. history. And so you start looking down the list here, and it begins in 1773 with the Sons of Liberty and the Boston Tea Party. Now, first and foremost, is this an accurate definition of, of American populism? Is it simply just being of the people? Because if we take that concept of populism, it's just you're just of the people, well then, as this timeline shows, it can be just about anything. If you just believe in quote-unquote democracy, then you're a populist. So that would make virtually anyone who espouses some type of democratic government a populist. Or maybe, I think in the way this looks at it, it's bottom-up uh, government or bottom-up resistance to uh, whatever the, the issue may be. That would be populism. Now, the curious thing about that, and I think this is where you get into the legacy of Andrew Jackson, what Meacham says is the legacy of Andrew Jackson. He connects Jackson to Lincoln and then Lincoln to Teddy Roosevelt. I, I would agree in many different ways with that, but not because they're populists. I mean, I don't think you could ever make the case that Abraham Lincoln was a populist. There, there's no way you could do that. Lincoln was a corporate lawyer who represented the elite, the, the economic elite of the North, uh, always in his political career, even during the war. He might have made a speech, the Gettysburg Address, where he says, you know, government of the people, by the people, and for the people should not perish from the earth. But, of course, he's fighting against that in trying to uh, coerce the South to stay in the Union. That was government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The people that could vote, the citizens of the South. There's no difference in the North. The people in the North, women couldn't vote in the North. In fact, uh, many women's rights people were very upset about the Union after the war because they supported the Union and got nothing out of it. Uh, they, they were not happy with this situation. They still couldn't vote. The, uh, now, uh, some states started allowing that. And, of course, uh, you started seeing, I believe, Massachusetts allowed uh, freedmen the ability to vote. But most northern states did not allow African Americans the ability to vote in 1862 or 63. That just wasn't happening. Uh, so was this really? I mean, we're saying, well, the, in the South, there they they didn't they weren't a government of the people by the people because because they had all these slaves and those people couldn't vote. Well, they couldn't vote in the North either. Neither could women. So the the citizens of the South voted to leave the Union in popular elected conventions through crushing majorities. So to say that Lincoln was a man of the people is laughable at best. And I know lots of people have tried to do this over the years because they're trying to connect Lincoln to Jackson and Jefferson in this anti-Federalist tradition. I mean, it's just it's a joke when you start looking at that. But that's, that's the, the world in which we live. And then, of course, you have Teddy Roosevelt, who also said... Well, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a progressive. I'm for the people. This is people are going to get a square deal. I'm going to bring the government to the people. You can come to the White House as long as you got a bath and a car, and I'll meet you. And this very kind of you know folksy style. And of course, then you have Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And there's a connection. I'm going to get into that with this timeline. There's a connection there. Well, this is this is for the people. This is this is government from the bottom up. There's a major problem with all of this, though. Now, I do agree these people all connect together. Jackson does connect to them, but not because he's for the people but because he believed in a very strong central authority. Same thing with Lincoln, same thing with both Roosevelt's. And this government was from the top down. It was not from the bottom up. Franklin Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt could never be confused 
for a man of the people. <laughs> they came from a very powerful political family in New York. And they weren't of the people. That was, if, if you look at his definition, the concept essentially born of the people, not the elite. Oh, wait a second here. Franklin Roosevelt is of the elite. So is Teddy Roosevelt. Andrew Jackson is of the elite. I mean, if you want to say that, you can even say, was well, is Donald Trump a populist? Because he appealed to the masses. I mean, this is this is the question that we had with the founding generation. What what constitutes a good president? Do we want a demagogue, essentially? I mean, is, is Trump nothing more than a demagogue? I mean, this is a question you can, I think, legitimately ask. Uh, so is that government of the people? Now, of course, Trump is you know saying, well, I'm, I, you're the government. I'm, I'm just doing what you want. What we've seen out of Trump so far is is um, he's done some some fairly good things, I think, in some ways. But we've also seen a very heavy-handed, top-down approach to a lot of different issues. So, uh, is that really of the people? So let's look at this list. And I think what we have to, when we look at American populism and, and how to define it, uh, there was a there was a phrase that was used in the 19th century. It was "man over money," man over money. And populism at its root, American populism, was, was not just popularly elected government. Because, you know, the Whigs, uh, you know, espoused belief in popularly elected government. It wasn't that. It was a suspicion of finance capital and government getting together and making a big mess. The populists, like... I think you have to look at the intellectual origins of the populace and people like John Taylor of Caroline. John Taylor of Caroline's position was, look, if you take big government and you take big finance and you separate them, you can deal with them separately. Uh, he wasn't anti-market uh, or anti-profit. What he was was anti-cronyism. And so populism in many ways was anti-crony capitalism. What they didn't, early populists, I mean, this early populist belief was that local was better, uh, limited local government was the best, and of course what we don't really want is the uh, industrialists, the finance capitalists, the commercial interests, suppressing the agrarian interests. So populism had to have, in many ways, an agrarian element. Now, uh, could you have populists in the urban centers? Uh, this is a question that we have to ask today. Is this a different kind of populism? I think European populism is much different than you, than American populism because American populism always had this very rural, local, agrarian core to it, whereas European populism was something else. Much more interested in, say, democratic socialism, which is not populism in the American variety. If you look at Jackson and his supporters... They were often that very thing, the individualistic, locally-minded, agrarian, uh, uh, anti-government, anti-finance capitalist. I mean, the, the anti-fusion anti, uh, uh, of finance capital and government more than anything else. They were the old Republicans. So... When you look at this list and you start saying, well, this is all populist. I mean, this is this guy's populist, that guy's populist, this person's populist. So I want to go through this list by Daniel Levy, which is just completely stupid. 
and explain where he's wrong. Now, he gets a couple of things right here. I think you could say that, but particularly by his definition, if you're saying this is from from the uh, from the bottom up, not the top down. Let's start with the Boston Tea Party. He says this is a populist movement. The Boston Tea Party. <laughs> First of all, the Sons of Liberty were led by some of the most powerful people in Boston. This was, in so many ways, now it was, I think a lot of people misinterpret the, the Boston Tea Party as some type of tax revolt. And it was that in a way, but it was more of a revolt uh, against... Um, the uh, potential of an economic monopoly because the British East India tea was not going to be taxed, whereas all other tea was taxed. And so they would have had a monopoly on the tea trade. So the British East India tea, which was brought into Boston Harbor and was untaxed, they said, you got to pay the tax. So it wasn't necessarily a, re a rebellion against a tax. It was rebellion against the absence of a tax. And that was not going to go well. So... Uh, that was the point, but this came from the top down. If you look at the American War for Independence, the leadership there, these people were, were the elite of American society. They were, they were leading the revolution, and, and it wasn't very, uh, very democratic, in fact. And you know, the founding generation was highly suspicious of democracy. He actually lists the Declaration of Independence as a populist document. How so? It, it was a document... Where the, uh, where the states decided that they no longer want to be part of the British Empire. Now, I guess if you can say, well, this is the will of the people, uh, I mean, you're, you're stretching this term of this definition of populism now. I don't think this is in any way a populist movement in that particular... Now, if we're looking at uh, you know, the, the functions of government or the foundations of power, I think you can talk about you know, where that was part of it. And, of course, I've done a podcast on the Declaration, but this is a curious addition to a list of popular or populist revolts in American history. Uh, the creation of the New York Manumission Society by John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. But let's take, let's take his definition. This is from the people, not the elite. John Jay, the Supreme, later the Supreme Court Chief Justice, a man who was one of the most wealthy prigs in all of New York society, Alexander Hamilton, would never be confused of the man of the people. But this is somehow, somehow a, a, a populist movement. In fact, to, to put this in New York is to take out of context the entire beginnings of the abolitionist movement in the United States, which most of the early abolitionist societies were in the South, not the North. Now, he does mention Shea's Rebellion, which I think in that particular way, you can say, okay, that was maybe uh, uh, you know, much more of a populist type of uprising. You had these farmers who were, who were resisting attacks, and the elites like Sam Adams, who was, by the way, one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty, which is supposedly populist, was saying, you know what, you voted for the people in this government, you got to pay the tax now. So he's, he's inconsistent in that choice. I think that one, maybe you could say, okay, that's more of a populist revolt. The Whiskey Rebellion, same thing of 1794, which, by the way, is a chapter in how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. I get into that uh, in, in quite a little bit of detail uh, and uh, explain where the legal questions are with that and how that all worked out and how this was really problematic for the future of American government. The War of 1812 is on the list. Hmm. The War of 1812. Now, I've never seen anyone ever describe the War of 1812 as a populist revolt 
or as part of American populism. I mean, I think you would have to stretch it and say, well, it was you know resistance on the frontier. Americans are moving out there. You got the British acting obnoxiously. They're funding the American Indian tribes, whatever the case may be. But as a populist movement, uh, no good. Um, General Jackson's army defeats uh, the British at the Battle of New Orleans. Now, of course, the uh, militia was highly involved in that. So uh, as I've already talked about with Jackson, you've got uh, a number of state militias involved there, and of course local residents in New Orleans involved in beating back the British. So in that particular way, maybe that's you know a populist type. But I mean, again, he's stretching the definition here. I, I don't know how you could say that was you know some type of populist uprising. Uh, he mentions James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales uh, as a populist as populist literature. Now. James Fenimore Cooper of New York, and this is this is obviously Levy's bias. I mean, he can't get out of his own way to talk about New York all the time. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper was an, an excellent. I mean, I should do a podcast just on Cooper sometime. This guy is an amazing person. Of course, his his American Democrat is one of the best books you could ever read in the 19th century. Fantastic. Uh, I would highly recommend going. It's free on. You can get it on Google Books. It's in public domain. Uh, but uh, read uh, Fenmore Cooper's American Democrat. Very good. Of course, a lot of people have seen The Last of the Mohicans, and so you have this. But this is more individualism, this rugged individualism. Daniel Boone, who is not, I mean, not to be confused with a populist, it's just this quintessential American uh, individualist, this frontiersman. Is that a populist, a frontiersman? Uh, I mean, again, you're stretching it a little bit there to say that all frontiersmen were populists. Uh, not necessarily, uh, but this is kind of the Jackson-Turner thesis that once you get out the frontier, that creates democracy and all these other things. So, I mean, this is, again, kind of a stretch to say that's populism. Uh, you, of course, you have Jackson swearing in 1829. Uh, I mean, whether Jackson was a populist or not uh, is, is remains to be seen. I think in some ways he was a demagogue, uh, without a doubt. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville writes uh, Democracy in America in 1835, again saying this was, uh, this was um, a, because it had democracy in the title, and de Tocqueville talks about uh, uh, populism as a valve, as, I'm sorry, as a value, excuse me, as a value. Uh, yeah, I mean, so this is populism? Again, it's, you're stretching the, stretching the definition. Uh, March 1836, Davy Crockett dies at the Alamo. Again, this is populism. Of course, you've got David Crockett, uh, the great frontiersman, just like Daniel Boone. Uh, but was this populism? You know, he's um, certainly Crockett appealed to a different type of American, you know, the, the, the rugged individual, individualist, just like Boone did. And, of course, Crockett was this, uh, this personification of what people thought an American was. But was it just populism? Uh, you know, populism has a, has a particular political element to it. And of course, Crockett served in Congress. Uh, he, in fact, was opposed to Andrew Jackson. So if Jackson's a populist, then what is Davy Crockett? This is you know, kind of strange. Uh, let's see. Uh, you have 1843. Um, future congressman Mike Walsh founded the subterranean newspaper with a call for women's rights in the end of monopolies. So is women's rights populism? Or is that just women's rights? Is that just feminism? Is that populism? Are the, are the two synonymous? That's a, I don't think so. Uh, because people are looking for the ability to vote? 
that's populism? Again, you're really stretching the definition here. I, um, again, 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention meets, and the women's suffrage movement begins in artists in the United States. Is that populism, or is that women's suffrage? The Free Soul Party formed August 1848. Now, <laughs> he says... It opposed the Western expansion of slavery and called for, quote, free soil, free speech, free labor, and free men. Now, of course, lost in that definition is the exclusion. If we're saying that populism is the inclusion of people, well, then it's the exclusion of anyone who wasn't white. And because that was the key to it. And the reason they didn't want slavery in the territories, as I've already talked about in this particular podcast, this show... Uh, with the podcast on why slavery is they didn't want it there because they didn't want the competition, plus they didn't want any black Americans living around them. So is this really populist? Now, he ingeniously throws in some racial elements to make it populism, to make it sound like, you know, the populism is inherently racist in some ways, but he balances that out with other things, which I think are quite interesting. So was this populist? Absolutely not. Uh, the The man who was nominated by the Free Soil Party to be their presidential candidate at one point was Martin Van Buren, who the Whigs called uh, a king. Right? He used to eat, sit in the palace in old golden spoons. Van Buren being from New York, a man of the of the political class. This was not populism. This was a political movement designed to gain power for a certain and, and their economic plank, the Free Soil Party. Their economics were very much in line with the Hamiltonian system. So that's not populist at all. Uh, 1855, Walt Whitman publishes Leaves of Grass, uh, which is a, a most, one of the most overrated pieces of literature in American history. Is it populist? Because he talks about democracy. He's the spokesman for democracy. Again, you're stretching things. Uh, Millard Fillmore, 1856, he's, he's uh, nominated by the, quote, Xenophobic and anti-immigrant know-nothing party. So it's know-nothingism. Is that populism? Because it's anti-immigrant? <laughs> or is that something else? I would say it's entirely something else. This is no. This has no uh, in- input from, say, John Taylor or Thomas Jefferson. Their legacy. Uh, because it's the know-nothing party. Uh, and then. April 12, 1861, South Carolina's militia shelled Fort Sumter, setting off the Civil War. Now, what set off, this is, again, bad history. What set off the Civil War was was Lincoln pulling his cabinet and saying, you know, I'm going to provision Fort Sumter, even though I know it's going to start a conflict. So Lincoln started the Civil War, not the South. Uh, May 1862, here's an interesting one. The Homestead Act becomes law, opening Western settlement by offering 160 acres to all Americans, including freed slaves. Oh, and also railroad corporations, because all you had to do was stick a house on it. You didn't have to actually do anything with it. And so railroad companies got gobbled up a lot of this land, the best land usually. Now, there were people that uh, were able to uh, acquire this land. But uh, is this populist? Because we're, we're settling the West, that would make all Western land legislation populist. Now, I think that if you're looking at farmers, I mean, you can make that case, but uh, again, you're stretching the definition of populism here. This is just, this is really bad history. And unfortunately, it's at your checkout line in Walmart, and lots of people are going to buy this thing if they want to drop 13 bucks. I, I just did it for research. I'm, um, January 1863, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, which, uh, is that populist, or is that a political or diplomatic move, which is exactly what it was. 
Uh, oh, here's a good one. December 1865, Confederate veterans form the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, because that's populism at work, you see. Uh, anything that has to do with uh, opposition to uh, the uh, voting rights of, of African Americans or anything like that, it's all populist now. So uh, the Klan is somehow populist. You see where that's going. Uh, let's see. Uh, the 15th Amendment was populist in 1870. The National Rifle Association is somehow populist. Uh, th this is just interesting, his, his definition. Uh, Samuel Gompers creating the American Federation of Labor. That's populist. Now, here's where he starts confusing American populism with progressivism or with urban populism. They're different things. The, the labor union movement was very much more in line with, say, European populism than it would be American populism. Uh, by far, because it had a much more socially progressive agenda. The social democratic agenda. Uh, 1892, he mentions the People's Party, nominates uh, James Weaver as their candidate, uh, and William Jennings Bryan gets his uh, the Democratic nomination in 1896 after his Cross of Gold speech. Now, I think you can say Bryan was, in many ways, an old Jeffersonian populist. and a, not, not entirely, but I think the... the it was there in Brian's uh, speeches and, and uh, rhetoric. Uh, you could find it, of course, Brian being from Nebraska. Uh, and uh, you, you definitely had a, an agrarian element. You know, the, just the symbol of the cross of gold, the idea was that was, you know, farmers were very uh, religious, very Christian in the late 19th century. Brian himself was, in fact, you know, he was uh, famously you know, part of that Scopes trial in the 1920s. Uh, but... Uh, Brian using that imagery, you know, it was, it was the farmer is 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 the Christ-like figure being nailed to a cross of gold, and so this was, you know, a critique of say industrial capitalism or the elite. So I think that Brian is that, that's okay. Uh, Ida Tarbell's, uh, you know, uh, story of the uh, history of the Standard Oil Company, you know, it's uh, somehow populist uh, because she's attacking big business. The Progressive Party in 1912 nominates Teddy Roosevelt. Again, not to confuse populism with progressivism. This is the real problem uh, in this particular analysis of populism. They're, not, they're different. Uh, the 17th Amendment being ratified is somehow viewed as populist, where it's actually progressive. Now, I mean, there are, there are people that made the case that the progressive just swallowed up the populist, but you know, people like C. Van Woodward have said the progressives were actually the conservatives and the populists were something else. In fact, the progressives and the populists often fought it out. They had different agendas. Uh, the 18th Amendment is somehow populist. Uh, the American Civil Liberties Union is somehow populist. The 19th Amendment is populist. The stock market crashing is somehow populist. The New Deal is populist. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the the uh, September 1940 Isolationist America First Committee is formed. Its spokesman, author Charles, uh, I'm sorry, aviator Charles Lindbergh, called for staying out of World War II. Is that populist? I think that, I mean, American non-intervention in war, I mean, is that just populist or is that just the American uh, diplomatic tradition? Would you say then that George Washington was populist or James Madison? I mean, like people say Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. Take your pick of any president up until 1861. Were they populist because they opposed getting the United States involved in foreign wars for foreign gain only? Uh, 
you got McCarthyism in 1950. You've got uh, the FDA approving the birth control pill. Somehow that is populist. And this is just silly stuff. Betty Friedan's feminine mystique is somehow populist. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society is populist. <laughs> you know, this is, this is kind of silly. One thing I do think he's right is George Wallace's campaign in 1968 definitely was an anti-elitist campaign. Uh, you know, he called, he called people pointy-headed bureaucrats. I think you definitely had that. Uh, the, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was somehow populist. Uh, Rush Limbaugh is somehow populist. Yeah, I mean, because every time I hear Rush Limbaugh, I think populism. Uh, you know, so the Occupy Wall Street movement is somehow populist. I think what he's doing here is he's, he's very much confusing. Levy is very much confusing all these other things as somehow part of American populism. Of course, he says Donald Trump is populist and the Civil Rights Movement was populist. All those things are populist. So what is American? If I was to look at that and I was to say, okay, well, then how does this define American populism? I couldn't. You couldn't define American populism on Daniel Levy's uh, his list of populist things. There's no way to do it. It would be just some ad hoc, thrown-together thing of various discordant movements uh, by various groups to gain political power or to attack what they consider to be a financial industry. But this is not what populism is all about. I think you really understand populism. You need to go out and read the treatises of John Taylor of Caroline. Go read those, and you'll find what American populism actually is. Yes, they spoke in terms of democracy, but it was a, it was a restrained democracy, not universal. Uh, there was very much pushback against, say, uh, you know, universal suffrage, universal male, white male suffrage, even in Virginia. The, the, the idea was, to many Virginians, preposterous even though they spoke of democracy. So how can, you, how can you say that just a democratic movement is somehow populist, or these things that were actually led by the elites are somehow populist? They're not. I actually say that you know, Daniel, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Donald Trump is in many ways still a progressive. I mean, he is. He's not really a populist. He's a progressive. We should not confuse the two terms. Populism and progressivism are different things. They're different animals. Progressivism was very much born out of the elites. In fact, uh, when you look at the progressive leaders, they were saying things like, look, only the educated should vote. Woodrow Wilson uh, had a cabinet full of uh, experts. That's not populism. That's progressivism. They're not the same thing. Teddy Roosevelt uh, was very much in that line of thinking. So was Franklin Roosevelt. So this is not popular government. It's elite government demagoguing, flattering the public. This is like Pericles more than anything else. I mean, was, was Athens in the 5th century BC, was that populist? Because Pericles actually spoke to the people. It's not. Uh, and I don't think you can say that outside of the Jeffersonian political tradition. There's actually a, a man who commented on my uh, Facebook page. He said, thank gosh, thank God we have, uh, you know, we, we've got uh, Hamilton uh, rather than, than uh, you know, Jeffersonian, Jacksonian democracy. Trump is schizophrenic in this way. He doesn't understand. You know, he likes Jackson, but he has Hamilton. Of course, the reason he's commenting on that is because I put a picture up of, of uh, Hamilton there, and I said, here's the real problem. No comment. Uh, you know, Trump 
lionizing Hamilton along with Jackson. I mean, these guys were problematic because they were nationalists and because they believed the central authority should do everything. That's what the, that's what the progressives believed. They weren't really populist in, in any of the, of the traditional American way, the Jeffersonian tradition of decentralization. And the resistance to the fusion of organized finance and government. That was the real problem, that crony capitalist side. Jefferson uh, was not anti-bank or anti-market. He was anti-fusion of, of uh, banking and market and uh, government. That created a big mess. So in order to understand American populism, you have to go beyond simple rhetoric. And what we think is, well, this is kind of popular government. This is a garbage list. And we cannot connect uh, populism to Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt or any stretch of the imagination. It's impossible to do so. Even if you want to try, I believe it's impossible to do so. So it's really hard to do a def- to do a podcast on, on populism in 30 minutes. I've tried to, I mean, this was just a lot of fun critiquing his list because his list was just completely stupid. But uh, what do you expect from a popular publication like Time with a popular historian like John Meacham as the quote-unquote, author of this little condensed version of Andrew Jackson's life, uh, I would expect no less. In fact, uh, you know, just to glorify Andrew Jackson, particularly his presidency, and he has a horrible chapter on nullification. It is just awful. Uh, He claims Jackson was the winner in all of that, which is not true. Nullification actually worked. But somehow Jackson is now portrayed as this expert politician navigating both the Congress and South Carolina and getting what he wanted, uh, and 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 uh, showing federal power, and that we're going to put. To, but lost in that story is the fact that South Carolina also nullified the force bill that Jackson wanted passed. So uh, that was nullified by the state of South Carolina. Uh, so I mean, it's a it's a terrible terrible <clears throat> uh, history in so many ways. But again, what do you expect for a popular publication? All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion of populism and uh, and of course the uh, bad history of John Meacham and Daniel Levy. And I'll see you next time on The Brian Man.